0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Reset Show. Uh, I'm Emma Bridger, founder and director at People Lab. And I am delighted today to be joined by two um, old, maybe not so much the old friends of mine, um, Sue Dewhurst and Liam Fitzpatrick. I'll give you a little bit of their official bio, but I'm sure they'll be able to make it a lot more interesting and colourful than the official bio uh, bio lets you, lets you into. So um, Sue, Sue has worked in internal comms for many years, over 20 years. Um, she's a, a well-known consultant a well-known trainer uh, been published all over the place a professional communicator and I think you know it's fair to say both Sue and Liam are two of the early pioneers of the whole world of internal communication and Liam likewise um, been in the industry many years also got a You know, got a lot of expertise in PR and external comms as well. Um, Incredibly well-known and and incredible practitioner in internal comms, though. Uh, Also does some guest lecturing on the side as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, really, uh, really delighted to have you both on the show today. Is there anything that I haven't mentioned in either of your bios that you think you'd like to add to?
1: From me, gosh, uh, makes me yeah. feel very old. I used to like it when more when people used to say, Oh, you're so young to be in this job, and now they go, Oh, you've got so much experience.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah I, th- I think you've pretty well covered it, really. Apart from my you know general charitable works and kindness, I think you've pretty well covered the list. You?
0: Brilliant, cool. All right, Ed. So, I mean, I, I first met both of you kind of in the early to mid 2000s which again, makes us feel very old. I reckon it's about 20 okay. years. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, you two were like real pioneers because you were developing, uh, well, you did a piece of research, didn't you, on, on, on competencies for internal communication. was that. really groundbreaking at the time and nobody did anything like it. And I think I kind of got involved in that. I think I spoke to you since I met you. Um, just, I think you interviewed me for it. And then obviously off the back of that came the uh, the brilliant Malcolm Black Belt course, which mm-hmm. I when I was in house, I sent all of my team on um and I think you know for years I kept thinking why haven't these two written a book it just seems obvious with the you know the, the, the background the expertise the skills you have so I know you wrote your book um successful employee communications I've got that right haven't I hopefully a few years ago and it's now it just come out and it's second edition mm-hmm. so which is amazing which means they must have sold some the first edition which is always, always a good sign isn't it um so I think you know it's brilliant that you finally kind of put all of your great you know expertise thoughts ideas a really practical sort of advice in one place so tell us tell us about the book and tell us what the updates are for the, for the new edition
2: oh I'll let, I'll let Sue lead off on that one
0: uh, okay about the, uh, the new
1: edition well it's three years since the first edition actually and yeah. quite the world's turned upside down in that time isn't it really so we've had COVID-19 you know small thing of a global pandemic so um, I think that's one of the reasons they asked for another edition, because it really has been a big time for internal, internal comms, hasn't it? So we've got a lot of cases in there about uh, the kind of things people have been working on during that time. Yeah. Um, it's also been a big time for purpose in the whole more the business environment, really. Um, that kind of shift to stakeholder capitalism and the whole idea that it's, it's really not OK anymore to focus your entire world on shareholders. Um, so I found a really interesting reading about that, uh, and we completely rewrote the purpose chapter. Um, and we did a new chapter on listening as well, um, because I think subject dear to your heart, Emma, is the whole idea of to what extent are we putting employees really first? How much do we really know about them? How well are we listening to them? So we did a whole chapter on listening, and uh, and Liam, you did one on the changing world of work.
2: Yeah, and that was—I mean, I think that was a kind of a that was a omission, I think, from the first edition. Which we, we, I mean, it's, it's we've what we've done, attempted to do, is just kind of make make the point that people's expectations in the workplace have changed. And I think even when we wrote the first chapter, a lot of the issues around, you know, DEI were, were out there and people were talking about them. But again, you know, in the in, since we wrote the first edition, there was the whole George Floyd thing, and and I think the realization that actually corporations universally now accept that they have a they have an obligation in this area so so we, we've updated you know we've introduced a new chapter around that to to, to reflect that but not just the the d and i but generally trying to touch trying to just play catch up on things like people's expectations about hybrid working or uh indeed actually generally what you know what people expect from the workplace and how we communicate them so we've tried to catch up a little bit on that although you know very conscious of actually when you the moment you put some of the stuff in print it's kind of out of date as well particularly around hybrid working which is a world which is moving so fast Um, i imagine if we had this conversation in six months time we'd be talking you know it will be a very, very different conversation around you know the idea of you know where people work how people work those sorts of things
1: Great resignation yeah. as well, isn't it? It's going to be interesting yeah. to see whether whether it's actually a thing. Um, and I'm just really hopeful that finally the powers shifting towards employees. I think it's been too much in the hands of shareholders for for so long now. It's just my real hope that now, you know, the powers actually got into people's hands and it's it's going to stay there for a bit. But who knows?
2: Well, I mean, it, it's I mean it's a really interesting point in the context of like. The you know the workplace is now we can all work wherever we want. I'm sitting in my garden shed in here in Hertfordshire in Southeast England, and you know there are people you know around the world who are kind of working quite happily at home. They're doing you know excellent work. They're you know but on top of that they're able to balance their lives a bit better. You know they can you know they can go to Pilates on a Thursday night without have to worry about a commute and all that sort of stuff. And, And corporations are having to make an effort around the whole employee value proposition. So, you know, why would I have a relationship with a company when, in fact, actually the work coming out of my computer is the same work that I do for that company or this company? So why would I choose to work for this company and not that company or this organization organization? And so it's sort of I think a lot of large organizations are now you know, really getting into the whole. Well, what is it that we are? ask of our employees and what do we give them what do they, what's the give and the get for for the workplace so it's it is a it is a time of great change I think in the whole relationship and communications has a pivotal role to play in in you know in the um, in moderating that relationship
0: absolutely and I mean you know you've talked about the, the way the world of work has changed beyond a recognition in the last couple of years have you seen a, I suppose, A internal communications support that. What role has it played? And B, have you seen internal communications itself starting to change as well, to, to keep up and, and to support business in, in a different way? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting one,
1: isn't it? Um, I mean, we uh, we both met at a time of when when our respective businesses were going through a crisis. Um, obviously, not the scale of the crisis that we've just been through in the last in the last few years, but. Um, I think we've both just been in that position that a lot of communicators have been in those, these last few years where suddenly you're right at the centre of things, um, you, you are all there in all the key meetings and suddenly your work is really, really, really important and people listen to you and I know Liam hates the phrase of seat at the table but suddenly you've got <laughs> the seat at the table and um, and at the same time, I think a lot of the, the COVID work, it actually was nuts and bolts internal comms, wasn't it? It was good messaging. Yeah, yeah. It was, oh gosh, the channels that we've got suddenly don't work because suddenly we've got to be able to you know reach people working from home. So we've got to get the right channels in place. Um, so in a way, I think a lot of it, dare I say, was almost the the, the comfort zone of tradition internal comms. Um, and it's maybe possibly as we're starting to shift out of it now that I think the challenge is to say well can we hold on to that you know Mm. can we make sure that now we are there when organizations are talking about well-being and purpose and all the things we've just mentioned which are about more than messages and channels I Mm. think now it's for me is when it gets interesting What, what think you Liam
2: yeah, I mean because in, in the book, we talk about there being kind of three classic roles for internal communicators. There's the, you know, the the delivery or the plumbing role or the utility role where you've just got to be really good at, you know, getting messages in people's hands and listening to them and all, and just having the really good strong processes. And if anything, the the whole COVID experience really tested comms functions in that in that area you know we needed to find ways quickly to get messages today into people's hands and actually listen to them and get and and that was really good and a lot of organizations valued their comms people a lot for doing because we you know as a profession we had a lot of that but the other two spaces are the kind of business partnery space where we say to you know we say to our internal focal points well, what you're trying to achieve, let me see, show you how Comms can help you with that. And then the third piece, which is the kind of seeing yourself as a as a business leader, and you're going to the organisation and talking about, you know, well, how do we how do we push the employee value proposition? How do we address these big global business problems? And I think certainly, uh, I'm I'm pretty certain Sue will agree with me. I think the last twenty years we've seen a much bigger expansion into those second and third areas of good strong. Business partners who know how to have an argument, who have the respect of the business and are trusted and and people who who are expected to come with insights into the big business issues of the day. And a lot of the case study in the book are from people in those spaces. I think, though, there are still an awful lot of people, though who are trapped in that space where the businesses around them still expect them to deliver what they want. You know, they'll come and say, uh, we've decided um, that we're gonna have a careers week next year. So uh, can you organize me a careers week? Thank you very much, off you go. Or, you know, we're gonna do a big campaign around International Women's Day. Can you do that for me? Thank you very much. And they don't feel that they're able to push back and say, well, what are you trying to achieve with the careers week? And what's our story around International Women's Day, for example? And, and why is that important to us? And, and I think there is still a lot of pressure on people in our profession to go, have colleagues who don't understand comms, who expect them just to crank stuff out and to just be the people who can press the red button. And, and I think that's still a challenge for a lot of people out there. And I think a lot of people are making fantastic strides forward in that space. But I think a lot of people still really struggle to get, you know, to get the ear of their stakeholders to say, Actually, we could do it so much better if you just engage in a conversation early on.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. isn't it? I mean, I, I know well, we've, we've all had conversations about this <laughs> many times over the years. But um, I, I wonder if you've got any thoughts on uh, why it is that we're still having these same sorts of conversations, because I know that, you know, when I worked in-house myself, Looking after internal comms. I work with a really bright, capable, enthusiastic, can-do bunch of people who wanted to change the world, you know, not, not all of them, maybe, but a lot of them are like that. I'm still in touch with many of them today. And that often was my experience of going to conferences. You know, you never, you never got a, a better bunch of people in a room as at an internal comms conference, in my yeah. opinion. And yet we're still having these same conversations, right? So I just wonder if you've got any, it's a bit of a, a bit of a dusty question. Yeah. Any thoughts on why we're still having these conversations?
2: Yeah, it's really interesting to say that because one of the case studies in the book is from Shell, um, and um, got the, the global head of internal comms at Shell, and um, and they and the way they organise their comms is you know the, the classic business partnering model and delivery model and stuff like that. But one of the key things that uh, the the head of uh, head of internal comms at, at Shell said was that they are very dependent on the managers with whom they work. And she said there are some managers who really get comms mm. um, and other managers who don't. And so a lot of their customers or their stakeholders. And she said that increasingly though, in a, in a corporation like Shell, she said, that's where they're seeing change is not so, you know, the team already to deliver the great comms. Mm. It's how persuasive and how coachable and how, interested are the stakeholders in receiving good comms and that's where she sees the difference that's where she sees the change happening and she says the best work they're doing now is in that space with with managers who come and are demanding and fussy and know what they want and and many of them have been through quite tough crises and so at some point they've experienced having a really good comms person you know you know on their shoulder and they they kind of expect that as the norm now. So I think that's the hope. That's that's where I hope the future will be for our profession. Is actually over time, managers will appreciate what good comms looks like, and they will be more demanding of it. That's that's my hope. I don't know, what we, don't know what you think, Sue.
1: I think that, and um, I also think. I mean, I, I've trained a lot of comms people over the years, as we know, and as you say, Emma people who do want to change the world and are very good and very enthusiastic and I also think there is a danger in thinking that this is all somebody else Um, you know I really want to do things this way but actually I can't because my stakeholders won't let me because I think we also see comms people who usually I say quite unwittingly are contributing to that um, so, you know, we've spoken before, I think, about the fact that one exercise we've often done is to get comms people in a meeting with an imaginary stakeholder um, and ask them to start, you know, to, to ask questions about um, their business need. And, you know, we've given them tools to do that. So we've given them, you know, the arrow framework that's in the book and various things. And, and we've literally said to them, Right, we want you to ask questions for 20 minutes do not suggest solutions, you know just ask questions and make sure they're questions about the business. And the number of people who find that incredibly difficult to do, um, you know just to ask questions, even when I mean I I understand it if people say well I, I just don't get 20 minutes with a lot of my stakeholders we've all had stakeholders like that Um, but it's like well now you've got it you know 20 minutes use it (laughs) use the space and they find it really really difficult to spend that time asking questions to not suggest solutions and to not start asking questions about channels as opposed to business stuff so to me it's a it's a two-way thing yes you i mean i don't think it matters how many years you've been in comms you still end up with those Hellish frustrating conversations where you want to pull your fingernails out because it's like, not these arguments again, you know, and not it's like trying to turn a ship round because the stakeholder in front of you doesn't get it. You know, we still get that. And at the same time, I think comms people can be there unwittingly their own worst enemies because of the directions they're taking the conversations. Mm.
0: Yeah, I just I, I just wonder about the um you know the increasing gap between. The communication experience we have outside of work, which is pretty slick these days, um, you know, Facebook is much better now. It's targeted ads than it used to be a few years ago. That's for sure. But we have a pretty slick comms experience outside of work, and then inside of work, you know, it, it's it's a million miles away. Not not in all organisations. There are some really big organisations that have huge budgets. It's very sexy. It's very slick. But for a lot of a lot of people the comms experience inside organisations is not great. And I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on on that gap and how we can start addressing that and why do you think that gap's there in the first place? It's weird, isn't it? It's almost as if...
1: I wonder how quickly you get sucked into a culture of thinking, well, this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting and watching a a leader do a session, actually, just because he'd asked me to give him some feedback. And... (laughs) I was quite—I was surprised about how dire it was. I was surprised that it, you know, it felt as if it could have been 15 years ago about the way it was happening, and and the way, the way that you know, every now and again, for example, you get the stories in the news saying, "Oh, here's here's ha ha ha, here's the 20 worst bits of jargon that we're using at work," and you think, "Well, this story rolls around every flipping two years, and we're still doing it, and it's the same words." So I don't quite understand how we keep falling into the same trap, unless it just becomes the way that we do things around here. What do you think?
0: I'm going to ask Liam. Ask Liam. <laughs> well, <laughs> Liam, what do you think on that one? I think it's. I mean, I think it's really tough. I mean,
2: I, I think a lot of people don't appreciate how much resource goes into running Facebook or, you know, putting shows on the BBC. You know, and they somehow so there's a there's that one challenge is the resources available for people to actually do great com i mean we're not all able to go and hire you know there's some great agencies out there who do fantastic work you know people like mccann's and, and you know h&h and those sorts of people they do great work but not everyone's got the resource to do it so somehow there's an expectation that the comms team you know will be able to deliver this sort of stuff with zero resource and whatever and you know that's 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 the one thing and i think the other thing is it's just attritional isn't it i mean if you how many times can you tell someone to just can you just shut up and speak english or, or shut up and speak a language that we recognize i mean you after a while i like, can imagine it's very easy just to let one go you know slip through uh, it's friday afternoon and i've got yes another you know the senior manager talking about right sizing for competitive success or you know whatever it is they've come up with you know um
1: strategizing for
2: operational excellence oh yeah that's that's quite a good one yes yeah, strategizing for operational excellence <laughs> and you look at it and thinking god blimey you know um <laughs> would it pass the bus stop test there used to be, there used to be a, guy, a famous guy um keith Waterhouse, who wrote a book called mirror style and it was a style guide for tabloid newspaper writers he wrote a couple of very funny novels including billy Lyon, and he used to talk about the bus stop test and he used to say. Would you imagine two people at a bus stop talking about, you know, well, I'll be strategizing about my nutritional requirements for uh, for my late evening repast? Would they? No, they'd talk about, you know, I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for my tea. And yeah, yeah, but I think it is attritional, isn't it? And there was that book when Sue and I first started doing uh, Black Belt together, there was a book that came out by Lucy Calloway, and it's called Who Moved My Blackberry. And uh, I've <laughs> lost my How... copy. <laughs> And it was it was it was absolute howler. And it, so basically, the idea is is it's 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 an updated uh, Roman you know novel of letters where basically it's this one guy sending these internal emails so that the whole story plays out in his email. And he's a good. This guy's a marketing director at some corporation. You don't quite know what it is, but it's. And he's obviously a complete creep. And. Um, he um he decides he invents this word which is um which he calls uh creavation uh, that was it it was a mix between creativity and innovation and you know and uh, the ceo really likes this he says, that's what we want more creavation so he's like he then spends you know, he then sees that as his ticket to the water and stuff anyway we were soon i were joking about this and uh about that time I was doing a project with one of the biggest advertising agencies and we were planning a workshop and um and one of the one of the guys I was working with said yeah we're going to have the initiation stage and I said do you mean the in- initiation stage thinking it was like a verbal type. Yeah. no 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 he said it's initiation but with ignition and the other guy in the room goes oh that's good mm-hmm. I'm living this. this is the real experience. <laughs> I mean, people actually do talk like this. and and since then it's just like being down here., it's just like nonstop down. is not it? It's I was just,
1: in a, one of my a, a workshop with leaders once, you know training line managers, uh, and one of them said to me that um in their team, because their their boss used to talk an awful lot of you know business buzzwords, and he said, we make words up. And we we make a word up, and then we just we all drop this word into conversation with the boss. Uh, And eventually, you know, because he loves his buzzword so much, he starts using it. And he said, "We wait." You know, we wait until some big occasion when he uses it, like he's on stage at a conference or he's in front of his boss or whatever, and he uses the word. And then one of us sticks (laughs) our hands up and says, "Oh, excuse me, excuse me, Fred. Um, I don't actually think I know what that word means." Can you, just, can you just explain it to me? And of course he couldn't, because it was completely made of word that meant nothing. Um, but but on a completely... Going back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, Liam, we have actually got a, a case study in the book from Timpsons. Oh, yeah. Um, who, you know, very well-known company in the UK. 4,000 staff, so, you know, they're not huge, but they're not small. Mm. Um, they don't even have a comms team. Yeah. You know, they have no, no communicators at all. Um, and you know, much as it's not huge, a lot of their people are, you know, they're, they're one person, you know, they're just scattered all over the place, which, as we know, that's pretty hard to communicate with, actually, isn't it? When you mm-hmm. just got standalone yeah. and deliver a, and
2: get them to deliver a brand,
1: exactly. Um, yeah. and you know, they're doing really, really good stuff, um, with their comms team. And you know, you're talking about WhatsApp messages on a Friday afternoon from the chief exec. Um, you talk they have you know a very traditional old print newsletter every week with lots of photographs in it Uh, they make an effort to um you know go and have lots of phone calls talk to each other face to face the chief exec spends 90 percent of his time on the road meeting people it's not highly expensive Mm. get the consultants in have an enormous comms team kind of thing um And I'll try, I will try when we're talking about something else in a minute, trying to find the the quote, because um, I spoke to a lovely lady called Janet, who's the director of happiness, which is a lovely, uh, lovely title, isn't it? Um, And she basically said, you know, we try and make things a lot more difficult than they are. (laughs) And she said, it just isn't. And she said um, something about it's just about people. Let me see if I can find it. It's just about people getting together, um, wanting to be in the organization. And here it is. Um, I said, what's your advice? And she said, if you haven't started already, please get to know your people. And don't just talk the talk. Do what you say you're going to do. If someone's got a problem, help them. Some people try to make it much more complicated, and it just isn't. It's just about a group of people working hard for the same reason, because they want to be there and they want the business to thrive. And if you put effort into your people, you'll have a better, stronger business. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, do you know what that is? Yeah. And in a way, that's kind of the red thread through the book that comes up time and time and time again. And and I think one of the things that I, I kind of echo back to the question you asked earlier, you Emma, know, because I think one of the ones things that I do see happening quite a lot is people who know the audience better than anyone else are people who tend to get listened to. So when someone rocks up with a bonkers idea, they're able to say, hmm that's a great idea but how about we do it like this or how's that going to play with this character Or how's, and quite a lot of people in the various case studies we've got in the book people talk about you know knowing the audience getting out and about and seeing them and and talking to them there's, there's a great case study from mark darby about what he did just to you know just to provide a really good level of intelligence to a ceo about what people were talking about this month and And I think in the beginning of the book, we, I think we say really great comms people are defined by a love and a joy of the people they work with. So be be able to take pride and share the joy when they get it right, be able to, you know, be, you know, compassionate when they get it wrong. But and also not to get bogged down, not to get too upset or, or dragged along in the in the bonkersness of the organisation but to step back and maintain that focus on the people around them mm. and how things are landing. And I think that's just so important because if you don't understand the people, you, you're just shouting, you're standing on the top yeah. of the might as well stand on top of the headquarters building and with a megaphone. It's just Absolutely. a waste of time. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's what
1: I think it's is quite, I mean, to me, that's what's exciting about this time and that's what the opportunity is about this time is that if genuinely, if suddenly employees have got that bit more power, then surely this time more than ever, organizations want to know them and need to know them. Mm-hmm. And so it's why in this particular book, I mean, we we I think in that in the first book, the, the call was very much, as Bill Quirk used to say, outcomes, not outputs. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he's been saying that for a long, long time, yes. as we know. Um, and this time we've said, look, we're still saying that, we're still saying it's outcomes, not out- outputs, but we're we're really saying, let's add another one, which is listen to your people, you know, get to know your people. And I, I just think it's, like I said, it, it feels like the time. Mm, yeah. It really feels like the time to say, um, it, it's an open door right now. If we don't take it now, when are we going to take it? And we we had, um, we talked a lot in there about the work that's been done by How Crace, Mike Pounceford, Kevin Rock. You know, they've done all those yeah. cases mm. about listening. And they they really challenging to people and say, look, we like to talk a good job on listening. And actually, we don't do it.
2: Mm. yeah yeah and you know what i i and i don't understand i mean i guess it's probably this you know how many hours in a day but you know if i could just do focus groups all day long that's that'd be me i'd be i just love it you know some of the yeah some of the most insightful moments i've had in my working career have been in focus groups where regular colleagues have just come out with things thinking I don't bet you no one in the boardroom saw that. Absolutely no one saw that. And yeah. you know, just
0: yeah.
2: or just you know, brilliant insights. And that's why that communication doesn't work because you know, these people do not are not remotely interested. Yeah, I Have did. I, I mean, years. Ago, sorry, years ago doing a focus group, and it was a group of. Uh, detective sergeants in the Met Police, uh, and I'm not giving, I don't think I'm breaking any confidence. These were all guys who've got like 29, 28 years in, so they were com- coming to the end of their, their service. And we were talking about understanding the overall corporate direction of the organisation. And these were, you know, these, these you know, it was, these was sort kind of very, very sharp people. And anyway, we're talking about you know the overall objective. And at the time, the commissioner of Metropolitan had a program. And it was called the Five P's. Um, and I asked him, I said, "Have you heard about the Five P's?" And this one guy sitting there, and he had had his his badge around his, his card around his neck, and and in and you know his ID. And he goes, "Oh, the Five P's." And he pulls out the back of this thing, this little kind of credit card size. Yeah, Five P's. It's, it's that's all about presence and professionalism and performance and couple of other things beginning and bigger yeah that's really yeah I really get that yeah and he puts on to him. he said but this guy's only been commissioner for two years so before him we had names of the previous commissioner pulls out another card and it was it was something like you know policing with integrity and then he whizzed that Yeah, but he wasn't with us that long either because and like seriously within about two minutes the room's in tears with laughter this guy's pulled, and he's got laid out on the table about four or five of these cards Right, and he yeah. goes, and I thought my job was to put, just put bad people in prison. <laughs> and, yeah. and we, I thought, There you go. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. all this stuff, is corporate gaff. you know, this guy had a very clear idea of what he was meant to be doing, knew, and it just wasn't, you know, scratching. Now, he then went on to say later on, he said, when I first started my career, things like domestic violence, we didn't take seriously. Now it's a priority for us. So you got those messages, but the big corporate stuff, Straight over his head, you know. Uh, Tell him the type of people he should be arresting. Yeah, up for that. Talk about, you know, talk about corporate objectives. Yeah, not interested.
0: Yeah, that's that. That that really that really resonates so much. Um, That whole kind of like not invented here at the top of the organisation, when you're in comms, the minute you get a new kind of chief executive, you know, you're going to be starting again from scratch with, with, you know, with a whole load of stuff because it's always like this sort of ego of like, well, I can't possibly take what was happening before. Even if it's working, I've got to start from scratch and invent my own way of doing things. So that's really interesting. And I I mean, values is an interesting one to talk about that sort of, because I, I hate the word values. And even in comms, we can't agree what we mean by values. Everyone's got a different take on values. It's like, again, that whole you know, that that plain English that we're, that we're after. I mean, would never talk about values outside of work, do we? People don't, don't come into my head and say, right, here are the bridge of fa- family values. You have to abide by them. And it's just we wouldn't talk in that way. And I just feel like it's, like you said, the Timpson model, they've got it right because they've got such a strong culture. It, it, it kind of goes unsaid. And and I know it takes a lot long, long time, a lot of work to get there. But, you know, explain to people what the values are and, you know, in my experience, half the time you look at the values and go, "Yeah, right." As if like, it'd be great if those were if those were actually true. But you know, just we, we kind of have this weird lexicon that we use in side organisations that we would never use anywhere else, right? So, yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. And of course, uh, there was, there is a. I think it was you. You, you showed it to me years ago, sir. And it was like someone said, apparently, the a human's ability uh, to be placed trust in someone it's partly driven by how transparent they think they are and so basically the more jargon you use mm. the the less trustworthy you appear to many people around you so you know a lot of managers use jargon because it makes they think it makes them look big and look like they're in the show all it does is actually tell the team around them that yeah not really don't really trust this bloke he's up to something mm-hmm.
0: yeah. absolutely. absolutely there's some really interesting research on that i won't, I won't go into it now because it we'll go off topic there's some really interesting research about what level what what level grade reading age is yeah. the best reading age to sort of really make your point and it's not it's not a it's not high level it's not a university level It's, it's a much lower level so
2: yeah yeah.
0: Um, and, and so you talk about the, the listening piece and put, kind of putting people back at the heart of it. And I know you've done quite a lot of um, not a lot, but you've, you know you've, you've kind of reworked the chapter in the book on on the listening side of things. So what what's the sort of the latest view from you on that? You say like, comms need to do this more? What should we be doing more of, and how should we be doing it?
2: I think. It
1: I mean, I mean, it was the really, it is the last chapter in the book, but we I think we start the last chapter by saying it's actually woven into everything. So by that point, you know, we've talked about listening to audits, we've talked about. Um, I mean, we you and I talked to Emma, and we talked about the idea of making sure that thinking about audiences, which is I don't like the term, isn't mm. kind of a you know we ask the business what it wants to do when we do it to our people, and they're an afterthought. It's they're right there at the start. Um, so I think audience, you know, listening goes all the way through the book, and really at the end, we're just saying, look, here's all the areas where we said we should be thinking about people and listening, and and we've asked you know to what extent how much you're working on that stuff, because our our suspicion is probably not half as much as trying to get people to understand the organisation, because that's usually what we're asked to do, isn't it? Never mind trying to understand our people, we want to get our our people to understand us. Um, So we're really kind of putting the challenge out there to put more time into it. We talk about employee voice. So, you know, the whole definitions of employee voice and what employee voice is. We talk about... So, you know, how to be people to speak up. Um, We talk about uh, helping line managers, for example, to be better listeners, um, the kind of channels and tactics we use. And and one of the things is what Leon just said, actually. I mean, one of the challenges from Craze, Pansford and Ruck is that when people are doing their measurement, it's mostly quantitative. Mm -hmm. so there's not a lot of qualitative quality you know conversations focus groups and and what we might call genuine listening with an intent to understand and do something about it as opposed to I want a chart to show my management team to look fancy with some data on it yeah Um, I mean I think we looked at what some of what the CIPR had been saying about listening which I know you'll know inside out Emma but They certainly seem to be saying that even when organisations seem to be quite good at listening, they want to be seen to be good at listening and they want to create a a culture of listening and a culture where I feel listened to, but actually what they don't really want to do is act on what they hear.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I did some work last year with someone and they, they'd had some negative responses in a pulse and they, I said, well, in a pulse survey, well, should we go do some focus groups and just have a chat to people, what they're talking, you know, find out why they aren't. And people were very, you know, very useful, very helpful. And um, I wrote it all up and uh, sent it in to my client and she said, oh, you might, before we, I send this off to the boss, you might want to have a look at this. And she sent me a document that they'd received six months previously from another advisor it said actually word for word the same thing so they'd had the feedback six months previously um and the employees had been very very specific about what needed to change nothing had changed and then the organization was surprised when employees said six months later exactly the same thing um, mm. um and i think that that's that point is well made you need to have an organization that's actually, you know, isn't just in the business of saying they listen, is actually, yeah. Yeah. You remember, people always used to have employee surveys and they always, you always get roped into messaging, go, it's time for having your say. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. you, I must have tried that, you know, put that on posters, have your say. It's only time. Yeah, no one cared. No one really cared, did they, mate? You know, <laughs> maybe it's
1: about, you know, joining together this 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 quest to do more of this thing back with the outcomes versus outputs thing because to your point about values emma um it could go one or two ways now couldn't it i mean even the whole world of purpose i mean more and more organizations will have to have for example purpose statements Mm -hmm. um even in the uk it's now written into you know enlightened um, enlightened shareholder value, isn't it? We're following that you're supposed to have a purpose statement, and you got you know places in the EU you talking about should we make it into regulation that you must have a purpose statement, and and in the one sense that's good, you know it's good that organisations will be forced to think about purpose, and on the other hand. We could all end up with purpose statements that replace value statements
0: that are yeah, banners <laughs> uh, uh, oh. on
1: ceilings and on walls and mean nothing. And we yeah. can have organisations that, yes, we all talk about having cultures of listening and you know having your say and all the rest of it. Or we can say, well, let's you know, let's go back to what are we doing this for? Yeah, and, and you know, yeah. how do we how do we not go to our bosses and go, oh, we need to have a culture of listening and we need to be talking about purpose? How do we hook it into something that actually? They care about and matters to them because this stuff does build better businesses, actually. It's not it's not just about, I mean, it is important, our people are important, and that's what why I go into comms is because I care about people, but actually doing this stuff as well makes a business work better.
2: I was uh, I was talking to someone an investor relations person not that long ago, actually, and she was saying to me, actually, um now when they get investors in, she said. You know, once in a time, you could kind of—I mean, she—I'm paraphrasing. She said you could just come up with the blends. They so now they actually do ask difficult questions, and mm-hmm. they know what the data they're looking for, and they're looking for evidence, and and you can't fob them off. And she said that, incre- you know, a lot of big investors now are going well, and they're not doing it because, you know, because they've got ethical investment funds that they, you know, that you know people don't want to put money into, you know, fags or into into you know weapons she said they are asking questions because they know that if you get it wrong that's going to hit your share price so that's going to hit your business performance or whatever and and she was saying it's it's, you know she was kind of partly saying well you know it's kind of getting out of control a little bit but i was thinking what i remember 20 odd years ago um i was doing some work for a, a trade union and they were in dispute with one of the major employers and we were kind of sounding out whether or not there was an angle, uh, a shareholder activist angle that we could go on to put pressure on the company. And I remember speaking to an analyst at one of the very, very big banks and saying, you know, well, do you not care the fact that this company has got a terrible industrial relations history? And, you know, it lurches from near strike to near strike. And and he said, Matt, these are the figures we look at. And he rattled off, you know, profit figures and then some standard performance measures for that particular industry. And he said, Hit those figures, we're happy, and uh, and actually, this is you know, this company's a safe bet. It's carried on hitting those figures, and and now you know, and now that conversation is inconceivable. Now, I think yeah. most investors would go, no, no I'm not, I'm not going to put my money in a company that um, that treats its staff badly, or I'm yeah. not going to put my. And just one other anecdote, I did a piece of work a couple of years ago for a very very large uh, fashion brand, global fashion brand. And they made a big thing about slavery, anti-slavery, because they said we're never going to sell someone a two thousand pound gown if the person wearing that finds out that part of the embroidery work was done by someone who was a slave. And, and they said we have, you know, we cannot sell, we cannot sell these garments if there's slavery work, So we have to do something. So they were, So people do take it seriously, yeah. and I think the world is definitely changing in the right direction on that. That's my sense. I, mean, I feel positive. Yeah.
0: I think I think it's a really interesting. We can have a whole topic, a whole whole conversation on this, right? Because I think absolutely businesses thinking about being ethical, being transparent, being authentic, hundred percent. But you're right, Sue. Going back to that purpose statement. So I think you know some people that you know most of it for EDF Energy, and they're still a client now actually, and they've got a really strong purpose. And they sh- so they should have. They're an energy company. And i really bought into that when I worked there, and I still as a as a, a supplier of theirs, absolutely buy into it. But then. I have to talk about when I was um, a student and I was working in a, in a lettuce trimming factory and it was a big factory. It wasn't a small sort of farm. It was a lot of people worked there. And if they tried to sell me a purpose of like, we're putting salad on the nation's table, I'd have been quite insulted by that. It's like, I'm just trimming lettuces, mate, you know? So I think it's got to be context specific and it's got to be meaningful and right for the organisation. Now, if they said... We really care about, you know, fresh produce and, you know, um, organic or whatever. and that, that would have bought into that. But I think you, you've got to get, you know, like I say, say, Liam, you've got to get it right because people can see through the, you think about some of the purpose statements I was probably involved with back in my in-house days. I'm probably quite embarrassed about some of them now because they were sort of just trying to sort of shoehorn some sort of purpose into, you know, you know, insurance companies or banks or whatever it might be. And it was like, oh, what, you know. Is that really the purpose of why we're here? So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, I yeah.
2: think. But that loops back again to listening to the employees, is not it? Because, I mean, I mean, I can think about doing, I remember doing a focus group years ago with welders at JCB, you know, the digger company.
0: Yeah.
2: And they, I remember saying to them, you know, what's it like to work here? It, you know, that, that kind of warm-up question you ask in a, in a focus group. And one guy goes, well, I work on JCBs and they're in the Oxford English Dictionary. And another guy said... Well, whenever I see like a disaster, like an earthquake or something, and there's a yellow construction machine in the background kind of, you know, removing rubble, I worked on that machine. I pro- I probably did one of the welds on that machine. Yeah. And, and he had this, you know, he, this guy had this genuine, and I remember to, Costa Coffee, I remember talking to uh, a barista in Costa Coffee, and she said, well, I kind of quite like making coffee, there's a bit of craft involved in it. And then she told me a story about her regular customers, and she kind of, some of them had, you know she said there's one woman comes in i think i'm probably the only person she speaks to all day um and the other people they, they actually had a kind of quite well-developed sense of their place in the community yeah i think yeah you need to tap into that not just go you know yeah. uh, delighting the nation with a coffee <laughs> <Exactly. happy-choice> option <laughs> yeah.
0: exactly exactly done right it works so yeah. i'm conscious that we are coming towards it <laughs> for our time together excuse me um, so before we finish, um, what next, what, what, where would you like to see internal comms go next? What, what, what's, what, what do you want to see happen over the sort of coming, let's say years, i will give you years. Go for it.
2: I'd like to see, I'd like to see internal comms people turn up with data more often. I really would like, you know, as well as running intelligence operation, which is about listening and, and, and inside, I don't see, you know. Organizations have tons and tons and tons of data sloshing around in them. And, you know, we know so much about the people who work for us these days. It's not a massive leap. to, And I think for me, if I had a magic wand, it may not happen in my working lifetime. But I would really like uh, when CEOs sit down and talk about comms and the workforce. I'd like them to know some key metrics that they're tracking, not just, you know, not just the engagement the, the engagement score. You know, we've got 72% engagement, happy to I'd like them to understand that, you know, if we communicate in these ways, we will get these results. And 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 this, and we know that I'd like it to be data driven and, and I'd like people to become a lot, more, a lot more chilled about using the data, and not so intimidated by it. Yeah. That's cool. Love
0: that one. What about you, Sue? Me, there's something about i would like
1: communicators to really be the voice of employees i mean when we mm-hmm. deliberately called this book successful employee communications we went for employees not internal oh. um because i think there isn't really internal external anymore is there it's all blurred, and we were trying to say whatever you call this group of people there is this very special group of people um that we not own but you know we're we're the people that Focus on them. Um, and if we don't know them, and if we don't, you know, spend time with them, and if we don't make sure their voice is heard, who does? You know, because that's that's our job, actually. So I was just sitting listening listening to what you two were just saying a few minutes ago, actually, and thinking, well, I don't know, maybe we just need a little campaign to get everybody to train to, to be able to run focus groups and, and run some more of them, because yeah. it sounds so simple, doesn't it? But I think you get so much from that. And A, for me, it it actually gives you a lot of motivation as a comms person. I mean, you do. Those are the moments when you hear the stories that leave you feeling uplifted. You can come out of a focus group, and you can do something that changes something for someone. Um, And you can also make a difference to the organisation. So yeah for me there's something about making those conversations happening knowing our people um and remembering that if we don't kind of listen to them and stand up for them might not be as many people that can can do that as easily as we can
0: amazing that is just such a brilliant brilliant point to finish on and uh, there's a quote that um that i've stolen from Gallup that i use a lot which is employees and now the consumers of the workplace and we need to really start taking that a lot more seriously. So I think you're right. Absolutely, we need to really listen to them, take them much more seriously than we have been. Which sounds crazy, right? We say it out loud, but they shouldn't be an afterthought. <laughs> they should be the first yeah. thought. So, absolutely.
2: And, they have, and and the Great Resignation shows that in lots of areas they now have amazing power. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much, Sue and Liam. Um, been an absolute delight as ever to, to have a chat to you. Um, the book is out now, so make sure you get hold of it. It's brilliant. I've read it. I've, I've got a copy. It's fantastic. So thank you very much. And um, hopefully we'll we'll see you both soon. Yeah.
1: Yeah, man. It's got a really, really good piece in it from a woman called Emma Bridger. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>